Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Welcome to this pre-recorded summer show from the Naked Scientists with me, Diane O'Carroll, where this week I'll be looking back at a year of naked archaeology. So listen in if you know somebody whose life has been ruined by archaeology. Many people are drawn to archaeology at a young age, only to find themselves skint, bearded, homeless and with no dress sense and a weakness for real ale in later life. 99% of archaeologists never recover and the other 1% get their own TV show. And for one radio hour, this recovering archaeologist will be taking you through Pompeian poo. The fantastic thing about sewage and fecal matter is that we uh, have a pretty good idea that the things in it were actually consumed. So this is the great value for this kind of thing at Pompeii. Andrew Jones, otherwise known as Bone Jones, the University of York, has called us investigating the bottom end of the market. He loves this kind of stuff. And my former Professor Gordon Hillman used to call this stuff pearls beyond price. That's Andy Fairburn. He's dropping into the show to talk about that shortly. Then we'll be discussing the eating part. Was bigger better for the Romans? You know, there's always these underlying moral connotations about how these really fat people have let themselves go and are therefore incapable of looking after their state because they can't look after their own bodies. So, I mean, there's always this really deep, satirical way of approaching obese people in, in Roman culture. That's Mark Bradley, and he'll be talking all about the concept of corpulence and being a little fatter in the Roman world. Plus, how to throw spears with an atlatl and how refining the dates of the most recent Neanderthals shows that they may not have been that recent after all. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Let's start off with a little active reconstructive archaeology from our Backyard Archaeology segment. Each month on the Naked Archaeology podcast, Tom Birch wanders into the wilds of Aberdeen to look for archaeology in his communal back garden. On one occasion, he decided to get a little practice in for the annual Aberdeen beer hunt with the aid of his colleague, Mike Bumstead. Well, today I've turned up in the middle of a field, a park rather. It's sunny, it's windy and I'm meeting up with my friend, Mike Bumstead. Mike, why are we here in this field today, and why are there some long darts on the the ground? Well, we're going to learn about spear throwers today. Ah, spear throwers, I see. Okay, so can you just describe what you've got in your hand for us, please? Well, I have two pieces of the technology that we refer to as spear throwers. One which is Native American, central Native American in design, 
and it's an at adult, something you would pronounce it differently in this part of the world. Okay, wait, so let's just take a step back. We've got a spear thrower, and then you use this word, adlatl. Yeah. So there's different names for this thing. Yeah, there are. Basically what it is is a, a long stick with a hook on the end. Yeah. Sometimes it's grooved, sometimes it's not, with a counterbalance, which you use to throw darts, what we call spears, long, sharp objects at things. So we call it the spear thrower... This other one you have in your left hand is the uh, Inuit version, isn't it, from the northern circumpolar regions. So some people might call that a throwing board. What's the Australian one? The Australian one is called a Woomera. Now, unlike these ones that I have here, which are single-purpose objects, which have sort of a bone hook at the end, the Woomera is a, a longer, narrow, curved board. And it was a bit more multi-purpose. It had some of the existing examples have stone sharp edges placed on one side. And some of them, in fact, as I understand, were used as shields. Some of them were of this size. And so they more than just a single-use spear thrower. Okay, so some spear throwers are multi-purpose. That's quite fascinating. The ones Mike are holding are quite different. The Native American one he's holding, which is a replica, has a stone weight about a third of the way down near the handle and there's the bone point he's talking about it's it's just a bit longer than my forearm and I believe they should be about that size for an individual I mean how do you use them Mike can you just show me and I'll maybe describe to our listeners what you're doing He's, he's holding these three and a half four foot long darts these are aluminium competition darts you can use light softwoods and there is a flight on the end so it looks like a long arrow I see Can you just describe what you're doing, Mike? All right, the darts have a knock in the back, so you you place that on the hook, this bone part at the end that we've been describing, referred to as the hook. And then you hold the dart along the length of the board with a handle in your hand, and you hold the dart in the same hand as you hold the handle, sort of like a pen. Okay, yeah, so at the moment Mike has got the spear thrower in his hand. He's holding it a little bit like a tennis racket or a badminton racket and at the same time on top of the spear thrower he has the dart lodged into the knock and he's balancing it on his his thumb and first two fingers a bit like a pen yeah so you're holding that now what are you going to do with it i'm going to aim at the target that's been provided today which is a uh, the box for a delonghi brand convection heater the rare mammalian species that has decided to grace us with its presence. Now, Mike, is, I'm just standing back for safety reasons. And, well, that's a, that's a long way, Mike. That's a, that's a long way. You've missed the target quite a bit. Well, the target that we've had set up, which is set up for a practical class that we teach at the University of Aberdeen, is probably about 40 yards away from our position. And, of course, these kinds of technologies, these spear throwers, are not really designed for close-range hunting. So that being said, I'm also not very good with them, so I'm probably not going to hit your DeLonghi anyway. Okay, second try. That's much closer, but that's great. So, I mean, that's a good 60 metres that's travelled, and how far can these things go, do you think? Ancient technologies, I mean, we're using aluminium competition darts, so these actually flow quite far. I mean, you can throw them... Probably anciently 250, 300 meters. 
the longest throws in the modern era are probably two times as long. Yeah. Okay, that's quite a long distance. Now with Atlatl, one thing we have to mention is that this technology, compared to just throwing a spear with your hands, allows you to throw the dart much, much further. I mean, the dart and the spear, we must make a distinction here, mustn't we? They're different things, aren't they? Because well, this isn't... When I was thought we were doing spear throwing today, this isn't a spear, Mike. This is a three-and-a-half-four-foot-long aluminium pole. Yeah, I mean, these modern ones that we're using are... They're exactly as you've described them. They're really, really big arrows. Yeah. With this technology, when we say spear throwing, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about javelins or a prodding stick with a with a stone tip on it, right? That's the more traditional idea, and I think spear, I think six-foot-long staff, massive iron point on it. But we're, we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about launching big arrows, basically. Yeah, even that being said, those, what we think of as stereotypical spears, there was an evolution in how to throw those as well. Ancient Greeks used a leather strap that was tied around the base, and it, what you would do is, as you released it, it would serve the same purpose as these spear throws that we're using, but it would also cause it to rifle. If you think about how a bullet works as it comes out of a modern firearm, the grooves are on the inside of yeah. the barrel yeah. to allow it to fly more stably and straighter. Those kinds of leather strappings that were used at that point would serve the same effect. It helped to stabilize and straighten the flight of what you would say a more stereotypical spear would fly as. So let's just have a... I might have a go in a minute, actually, Mike, if you wouldn't mind. I think I can give this a, a whirl. If you just hold that. Okay. All right. You've got it, you've got it set up. You've got it lined up. Okay. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill the carpool box. All right, do it. That was pretty bad. Okay, I'll just say for our listeners, it's not as easy as it looks, as Mike has demonstrated. I think I might have another go. So, despite my uh, three attempts at throwing a spear with a spear throw, I think we've concluded, Mike, that I'm not your natural hunter. But it's not always about hunting, is it? These were offensive weapons that were used. You were mentioning to me earlier about Montezuma. Yes, the Aztecs were very well known for using these spear throwers. The Aztecs, in, in fact, when the conquistadors arrived in Spain, terrified them with the potential havoc that could be wreaked upon the Spanish with, with these weapons. And it's really not until Cortes convinces them that he's their god and trouble occurs for that civilization. Other electrical appliance boxes are available. That was naked archaeologist Tom Birch and Mike Bumstead, who's a postgraduate researcher at the University of Aberdeen. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Diana O'Carroll, and a look back at some naked archaeology. You can find more interviews and archaeological news at thenakedscientists.com forward slash archaeology. Next up from our archive, computer programmers and archaeologists recently used a technique known as Bayesian chronological modelling as a window through which to look at the real political and even military events which shaped Britain's prehistoric past. The new research, based on computer-refined radiocarbon dates, strongly suggests that farming lifestyles were introduced from the continent through Kent and Essex by immigrants, and not simply through the transmission of knowledge and ideas. <laughs> 
The work also suggests that large structures known as causewayed enclosures only emerged in Britain once there was enough farming going on to allow leaders to lead ever larger groups of people. To tell us more, Alex Bayliss. Radiocarbon dating, used on its own, has quite large error terms. If you just get a single radiocarbon date, typically in the 4th millennium BC, it will cover about 250 years. But because radiocarbon dates is a probabilistic process, if you get 10 radiocarbon dates for a site, they will scatter around the true date of that site. So some will be a bit earlier and some will be a bit later. And it will look, even if all those dates are from the same Thursday afternoon in 3600 BC, you know, the earliest radiocarbon date will be 250 years earlier. The latest will be 250 years later. And it will look like that the actual site was in use for... 500 years, where in reality it was used for one afternoon. So the basic problem when we started was that normal radiocarbon dates kind of put the early Neolithic of Britain into a kind of splodge. Okay, we know it's early Neolithic, but it's this kind of undifferentiated splodge somewhere in the fourth millennium BC. Okay, so how do you go about differentiating that splodge then? So what we do is, instead of just relying on the scientific information, the radiocarbon dating, we've put together both the archaeological information with the radiocarbon dating. Now, I'm the scientist on the team, but I've got colleagues at Cardiff University. I work with Alistair Whittle and Francis Healy. And together, we worked out what that additional information is. So, for example... If you have a sequence of deposits through a ditch and you have three radiocarbon dates, it is very likely from archaeological information that you would know that the sample at the bottom of ditch is earlier than the sample in the middle of the ditch is earlier than the sample at the top of the ditch. And so you can actually use that relative dating that you've got in the archaeological sequence to refine the radiocarbon dates. Oh, that sounds lovely. But what did you get out once you had this amazing sort of level of refinement? Okay, well, the project that we actually were working on, the the group of monuments we were working on, and this was a joint project funded by English Heritage and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in Britain, was the dating of early Neolithic causeway enclosures. Enclosures seem to be gathering places that are used periodically. There's evidence for really big feasts where several cattle would be killed all at the same time. And, you know, they had a massive great barbecue, basically. Now, causewayed enclosures are the first big monuments that we have in England. They can be about 300 metres across. They have at least one, sometimes four circuits of ditches. The ditches can be rock cut, but they have lots of different entrance ways which is why they're called causeway enclosures. Some of them also have um, palisades and timber lacings in the earth ramparts that are formed when the spoil from the ditch is coming out. So these are fairly big things. You know, you would need several hundred people for a month to build one. So what we did was we went back to the archives in the museum, no new excavation, and we dated all the ones that had holes in from the past. So we've dated about 40 out of the roundabout 90 that are known, mostly in southern Britain, although there are a few in Ireland and a few currently unexcavated ones further north in, in England. And we found that they actually covered a very tight span. Previously, these things had been thought to be built throughout the early fourth millennium and to be you know, typically in use for maybe three or 400 years. 
we actually found that they appear very suddenly round about 3700 BC. And when I say round about, I mean within a generation of within 25 years at 95% probability. They appear first in Kent, then they spread very rapidly across southern Britain until about 3625 BC. About half of all examples seem to have been built in the first 75 years. So we have a boom. We have a real big construction boom. And that is, of course, followed by a bust, because then there's evidence that for about the next 50 years, it becomes, for whatever reason, they become very unpopular. And then in the generation around 3550 BC, again, it becomes popular again. So we have a boom and a bust and another boom. And then they just go out of use and nobody seems to, to build them anymore. And so there's a, a final bust. Right. So if the initial building uh, just occurs in one generation, what are the implications of that then, of that kind of proliferation of building style? What does that mean? Well, at this point, you kind of you know, get, have to get to the stage where you know, a date is just a number. Because, you know, if you've got no context, you know, we suddenly knew far more about enclosures. But, you know, we can't, I can't answer that question without telling you what happened in the rest of the early Neolithic. So we had to kind of unpick the rest of the splodge. OK, so to do that, we just looked at there's about 1500 existing dates. So we got details of all of those, looked at all the archaeology and, and did a model for that. And so we've written basically a completely new story for the early Neolithic in southern Britain. So what happens is, round about 4050 BC, probably the first pioneer settlers arrived from the continent in the Thames Gateway. Okay, then the idea of farming, basically it got from Kent to Cheltenham in about 200 years. Then round about 3850 BC, and by roundabout, I mean within about 25 years of 3850 BC, some kind of critical mass seems to have been reached because suddenly the Neolithic appears everywhere, bang. Within the next 50 years, it gets from Cheltenham to Aberdeen. Then in, in around 3800 BC, things really start to rock. It seems like the, the pioneer phase of Neolithic settlers is over, and what they're trying to do is build society because we have so many innovations in the next 100 years, of which enclosures are just the last. But the point is, you've got national exchange networks for high-quality stuff being established. And at the end of this process, this century of real dynamic innovation, where really everything is changing, that's when causewayed enclosures appear. So to now to get back to your, your question, why do causewayed enclosures appear? Well, what's interesting is that both long barriers and causewayed enclosures are typical Neolithic monuments that occur on continental Europe. So the question is not so much why did it appear in 3700, but why didn't it appear in 4050 BC with the initial colonization? You know, this idea was already around on the continent, but they didn't bring it with them. So maybe the idea is that the reason they didn't was because maybe they didn't have the resources to invest in that sort of stuff. They were too busy building their flocks or they were too busy, you know, setting out their fields. 
And actually, maybe what we're seeing in the three seven hundreds and with enclosures is an attempt to have control of, you know, what happened at the festival when they had their enclosure meeting. You know, who could get their hands on all this new exotic stuff that was being traded? So maybe it's actually about the emergence of power is perhaps our idea. Now we've emerged from the splodge, there's this story and we've actually got a dynamic narrative. Because what have I been talking about? I mean, I've been describing a political narrative of southern Britain 5,000 years ago. And we simply couldn't do that before without the dating. So from this study, it looks like farming was brought in by a specific group or groups of people rather than as a spread of knowledge through indigenous populations, which marries really well with the genetic data. And ultimately, it's their fault we have big community buildings. You can read more about her team's work in the book Gathering Time, dating the early Neolithic enclosures of southern Britain and Ireland. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Diane O'Carroll, and a look back at some naked archaeology. Indeed, we're looking at the fundus, the base and the bottom of archaeology with some archaeological poo. Smothered in volcanic ash in 79 AD, the site of Pompeii isn't just known for the incredible preservation of its residents and buildings. Also preserved at the site are the ephemera of daily life, including waste. But what sort of information can we glean from Roman poo? Andy Fairburn explains. Well, we're very interested in the uh, long-term, I guess, economic development of Pompeii, and especially the, I guess, life around the port of Stabia, the Stabian Gate, basically, through the several hundred years of Pompeii's existence. The project that I'm part of is it's run out of the University of Cincinnati in the U.S., and it's a multidisciplinary project like most archaeology projects are now these days. And it's really trying to disentangle just what the, I guess, the long-term economic change at Pompeii. And, you know, how did the site, how did the city, how did the lives of the people there change over time as the Roman Empire actually formed and then had various economic reforms? But how can Roman fossilised poo or coprolite help? Well, the material that I've been looking at, it's really the leftovers from sewage and rubbish, I suppose. It's a mixture of the hard bits that go through the digestive tract, I suppose, and also the soft bits, and I'm very interested in plant material, actually. I'm in, interested in the seeds and fruits and bits of leaf matter that people eat in their lives. And so what I actually get left behind, basically what happens when in cesspits and in wet areas in general, in archaeological sites, if there are very low oxygen levels and high water content, you can get plant material and soft tissues and all manner of things preserved, yeah, even when they normally decay very rapidly, if they were just kind of left lying around on the surface or if it was a very dry kind of environment. And what's happened at Pompeii in the context I'm actually looking at is that the sort of sewage, the rubbish and all that kind of thing has been damp long enough 
to basically fossilise, much like uh, dinosaur bones or other things do when they're left in the ground for long periods of time in the right kind of chemical conditions. And effectively, all the uh, soft tissue has been replaced by minerals. And those minerals come out of, again, all the rubbish and whatever that's actually preserved in these cesspits. They're effectively barrels, um, they're uh, guard robes, they're, they're holes dug on the ground and lined, often with amphora in there, actually used as a lining, uh, which people have then emptied their waste into. Now, what this actually allows us to do is to investigate you know, some of the things that were actually eaten by people in the past. Archaeology, most archaeological sites, and Pompeii's no great exception to this, the remains that we find there are dominated by the tough stuff and the bits that are often preserved in the case of plant material when, when they're burnt, basically. And we often get lots of rubbish, it's all mixed up. That's what we get to look at from archaeological sites. And we can't actually quite tell what people have really been eating, you know, what they've actually been consuming in a particular place, maybe a particular family or something like that. The fantastic thing about sewage and fecal matter is that we uh, have a pretty good idea that the things in it were actually consumed. So this is the great value for this kind of thing at Pompeii. Andrew Jones, otherwise known as Bone Jones, the University of York, has called us investigating the bottom end of the market. He loves this kind of stuff. And my former professor, Gordon Hillman, used to call this stuff pearls beyond price because of the rare glimpse it gives us. Really, if you, if you haven't got kind of direct, I guess, effluent sewage, you're waiting to look around for uh, very rare finds like bog bodies and mummies and things like that to give you this kind of information. So at, a, at an occupation site like Pompeii, it's, it's wonderful stuff, really. And it allows us to key right into what those particular people in those particular houses were actually consuming uh, at times in the past. OK, so from whom did these brown pearls come from? Well, the particular samples that we've been looking at so far, certainly from the later phases of occupation in the Port of Stavia, really they're coming from houses, buildings that are associated with basically retail outlets, if you like. I guess a Roman equivalent of the burger bar or that kind of thing. This is where the great masses ate, really, in the Roman urban world. Now, we're not actually sampling those people who are out the front eating the, the food that was being served up in these places, they're basically restaurants, cafes, that kind of thing, but really fast food joints. You, know, you, you go along there, you uh, pick up a bite to eat, and you head off on your daily routine. But we're actually looking at the people who are behind that, the people who were, I guess, uh, preparing and serving up that food, and people who actually lived in the houses in that area. So we're not really talking about, no, we're not talking about the top end of town here. We're talking about maybe some of the uh, business owning classes and some of their tenants. So really, I think we're looking at the lower end of Roman social world. Well, the question I've got to ask is, does it still smell? <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. It just smells of delicious, moist soil, actually. It's uh, a very pleasant stuff to work with, actually, and uh, I would say quite attractive to look at. Uh, I've seen a lot of archaeological material there in the microscope, and a lot of the seeds, fruits, and all bits of plant material I look at usually look pretty gnarly and blackened, and uh, they're not particularly aesthetically pleasing. But we get all manner of things preserved, and it's beautiful to look at, actually, these sort of basically fossilized mineral casts of things that were found in the past. And I have to say that it's not just the plant material, which I'm kind of obsessed about, so I, I love looking at, but we get all manner of things, including fly puparia, all manner of insect bits and pieces down there, too, because we're not just getting the actual sewage, the effluent, we're getting all the things that actually live on it, too, and they can actually be quite, um, I guess, to my eye anyway, quite beautiful to look at, in fact, and they're beautifully preserved. <laughs> What's the strangest thing you've found in there? 
there is a there's a certain amount of rubbish in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but most of the rubbish seems to be actually derived from food preparation. So you get things like you know, bits of fish heads and uh, you get small bits of bone vertebra that have been chopped up. You can see where they've been butchered and they may have been removed from the food during preparation or maybe the uh, the leftovers of somebody having a, a nibble of something. Just trying to think, I think the most unusual thing, the most interesting thing from my point of view are actually the insect remains, to be honest. They haven't been analysed in any way yet. Dr. Mark Robinson is going to be working on those. He's a world-renowned expert in identifying this kind of thing. And I find them probably the most fascinating of the materials that we find because often these things are, are quite, the insects are actually very specific to particular environments. And so what they can tell us, yeah, they can say this is a big smelly pile of old poo, if you like, but they also can give us all manner of, uh, potentially anyway, information about the actual the surroundings in the rooms, for example, that these toilets were in. We know from sort of generalized historical records that the Romans had a very different view of uh, hygiene to us. They often had the toilets in the kitchen. So you could throw out your kitchen scraps as well as food that had already been eaten, if you like. And so we can use the insect uh, fauna that we have potentially to tell us what those sort of conditions may have been like in the kitchen. So I find that most interesting. But I have to say rather sadly, we don't get things like bits of gold jewellery or anything like that. In the, it's all rather mundane in my end of town. <laughs> well, where there's muck, there's brass, as they say. Andy Fairburn, Senior Lecturer in Archaeology at the University of Queensland. And you can find more interviews like that at thenakedscientists.com forward slash archaeology. In just a moment, how diggers confused a donkey for an extinct horse and why chemists are shining lasers at bits of old plaster. Let's now move forward to the Roman world and how they thought about being portrayed as fat or thin. Today in the Western world, being slim is most often seen as a sign of health and wealth, while the overweight are often lambasted. But what happened back then? Was it fashionable to be a little more corpulent? Mark Bradley. The problem I'm trying to solve is to think a bit harder about how fat and thin bodies were evaluated in Greek and Roman culture and religion and society. That is not simply to translate the categories and the preoccupations that we have in modern society about what is obese, what is corpulent, what is thin, what is emaciated, but to try and think about how those categories and how those body shapes were being talked about, discussed, debated, criticised, particularly in Roman society. And what are you looking at to try and answer that question? I'm looking at a range of visual evidence, not just bona fide Roman art, but I'm looking at Greek vase paintings that were part of the visual culture of Roman Italy. I'm looking at Hellenistic sculpture. I'm looking at wall paintings, and I'm looking at Roman portraiture. So a full range of evidence to try and get an overall view of what corpulence, excessive weight, excessive emaciation looks like in Roman art. And so... How would you say um, obesity is thought of in, in Roman art? Is it positive? Is it a sign of wealth? Or, or is it something else? There are two very different discourses responding both to obesity and to emaciation in Roman art. And one discourse sees fleshiness as a sign of affluence, of the good life, of access to lots of food and resources. And this plays out in examples of Hellenistic rulers, for example, or 
certain Roman emperors who wanted to imitate Hellenistic rulers, who wanted to show how, how many banquets they had and how rich they were and how affluent they were. But at the same time, there's uh, a discourse which sees paunchy stomachs and jowly cheeks as part of a, a kind of comedic culture where these people have eaten too much and they've let themselves go. And obesity, fatness, big bellies are linked to decadence and softness and sometimes effeminacy. So two very different discourses going on at the same time, but it's important to recognise that they they both exist symbiotically. And do you think there might be an element of, I don't know, poking fun at, at those people in power, those people who are putting themselves across as being a little bit overweight, perhaps perhaps linking them to comedy might be something to do with that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So we get... You know, we get the same emperors. We get emperors like Nero. We get emperors like Vitellius, who follows Nero, who evidently are quite podgy, and they make the most of this in their portraiture by coming across as these affluent, well-fed, rich rulers. But at the same time, of course, you have critical responses from people around them, describing them in you know, in very very negative terms. So yeah, absolutely. I mean both interpretations seem to exist at the same time do you get fat jokes uh do you get fat jokes um they're quite serious fat jokes i think there's yeah i i, I don't think there's any sort of you know light humor surrounding this i think there's you know there's un, always these underlying moral connotations about how these really fat people have let themselves go and are therefore incapable of looking after their state because they can't look after their own bodies so i mean there's always this really deep satirical way of approaching obese people in in roman culture well that's interesting given our current preoccupation with how much obesity costs the nhs Mm. but you mentioned emaciation as well how is that portrayed um emaciation is uh, i mean we can assume in most pre-modern societies in europe that Food is not, you know, food is scarce and is not always going to be available consistently throughout the year. And it has been assumed that with famine, hand in hand with famine, comes for the majority of people thin, emaciated bodies, that this is the norm. And indeed, when you get, you know, elite artists and writers representing the poor, you know, one way you recognise them is by their thin frames, you know, workmen, tradesmen, and particularly sort of old homeless people, that sort of thing, are represented as being very, very thin. So that's one, you know, that's one clear way of interpreting emaciation. But the other side of the coin, which is a which I guess is a little bit like near the affluent ruler with access to all of the food and resources, the other side of a coin is that you get figures, particularly philosophers and thinkers, intellectuals, writers, and sort of stern, self-restrained generals and commanders who are actually quite thin and emaciated and you always get Julius Caesar with sunken cheeks and very bony features as part of his kind of you know he's in control of himself he doesn't need to let himself go he doesn't need to eat too much he's he's a man of thought he's a man who's restrained and and dignified and, and so on and so forth so again two very different ways of approaching it and so what's the next problem to solve then? Why are you going to take this research next? Where am I going to take this research? Well, I mean, it's, this research has led me in a rather different direction from what I was originally focusing on, which is looking at, you know, simply unpleasant bodies in Roman culture. This is, this is about much more than just unpleasant bodies, as, as I've described. And I need to sort of turn myself back a bit and look at other features of the body 
in Roman culture, which was perceived as transgressing boundaries or unpleasant or disgusting in certain ways. The alternative thing that I could do with this research once I've written it up as an article is to maybe think a bit more generally about the role of obesity, corpulence and emaciation in ancient medicine, in ancient literature, in a broader range of genres. So maybe thinking of a, of a bigger project, depending on how this particular project is interpreted. That was Mark Bradley, who lectures in ancient history at the University of Nottingham, talking about weighty issues in Roman attitudes. But let's now take a trip back several tens of thousands of years to early humans. One of the key debates for people working in paleontological archaeology is the overlap between modern humans and Neanderthals, who did seem to live side by side for a few millennia. But the length and nature of that cohabitation is still a bit murky. The most recent Neanderthals of the Caucasus were only this year redated to confirm just how recently they lived there. And it wasn't as recent as we once thought. To tell us more, Tom Hyam. We've been interested in chronology building and precise radiocarbon dating for many years. That's one of our main research interests. And traditionally, our lab has focused on archaeological dating, so we really specialise in that area. And one of the most challenging parts of radiocarbon dating is dating old things, and that's because radiocarbon is an exponentially decaying isotope, of course, and by the time you get back to five or six half-lives, you know, more than 30,000 years ago, you start to find that the amount of radiocarbon is very, very low and becomes increasingly difficult to measure. And not only that, it becomes very difficult to distinguish what is radiocarbon dead, in other words, beyond about 55,000, and within the period of 40,000 to 50,000. And the period that we're discussing here is very important for looking at the questions regarding Neanderthal extinctions and the arrival of the first modern humans into Western Europe. It's been a real challenge to radiocarbon date this. In the last 10 years, we've been using newer techniques, and this has led to a number of revisions of previous dates, which we found to be often very much younger than they, in fact, should be. So, for example, when we radiocarbon date a bone from one of these sites, using the ultrafiltration method that we've now begun to adopt. And we compare it with dates for the same archaeological samples or from archaeological samples from the same sites. We often find that the ultrafiltration dates are much older. And we would consider them to be more reliable because the challenge is always in radiocarbon dating this material to remove modern carbon contamination. That's the real headache for dating this type of material, simply because when we're down at 30,000, we've only got about 3% of the amount of radiocarbon that we have in the modern period. What's the situation that you had at Mesmerskaya then? So Mesmerskaya cave is a very important site in the Caucasus, the southern Caucasus of Russia. And it's important because it's produced physical remains of Neanderthals. There are two infant burials there. And one of them has produced DNA that's been used in the Neanderthal Genome Project. This is the Leipzig-based project, which has been working for the last few years on developing the Neanderthal genomic sequence. So it's a very important site. Not only that, but it's produced one of the latest dated Neanderthals in Eurasia, around 29,000 BP before present. So it's one of the most recent dates, and it's, it's important because it's been taken to suggest a late survival of Neanderthals there compared with other parts of Eurasia. So we were interested in testing whether or not this was true using the ultrafiltration techniques that I was discussing just before. And when we went back to the site and we took a whole load of samples from throughout the archaeological sequence, 
we found, as we have indeed found at many other sites, that those young dates just simply weren't robust. And when we redated some of the bones, we found that they were up to 10,000 years earlier than they otherwise would appear to have been. And this is really important, of course, because it changes the interpretation of the survival of Neanderthals in that area and the amount of time that they may have overlapped chronologically with modern people. Okay, we'll get to that exciting bit in a minute. So can you compare ultrafiltration to ordinary methods of carbon dating? What are the differences? Yeah, um, well, often what we find is that ultrafiltered collagen dates are much older than dates using other less refined techniques. An ultrafilter is sort of like a molecular sieve. It, it filters out very small molecular weight components and traps above the filter larger, long collagen molecules that are less likely to be degraded, altered, and contaminated. And so largely what we find is older dates using ultrafiltration methods, but not always. In cases where we have well-preserved bones, for example, with lots of collagen in from you know, permafrost areas, areas where the bones have been well-preserved and sealed, we don't see these effects. It manifests itself most often in places where the, the collagen levels are low, the contamination possibilities in the sites are quite high. And that's where we see the greatest differences when we, when we use ultrafilters compared to when we don't. So why don't more excavations use this technique to, to redate? Yeah, it's only in the last few years that we've published data that shows this. The, the technique itself was developed in the late 1980s, but surprisingly it wasn't widely adopted by radiocarbon labs. And we started using the technique in the early 2000s. It was only when I started collaborating with a colleague of mine from the British Museum who was interested in looking at the British Paleolithic, the British archaeological sequence, that we began to do some serious work in comparing old dates with new dates and comparing different types of pretreatment chemistry. And it was then that we discovered these dramatic differences that sometimes occurred. And since then, we've extended the work into deep European sequences where you find you know, many, many sites dating to this period as I said, we found that often the ultrafiltration does have a major effect. And it seems to produce results which are not only reproducible, but also produce patterns in the data and seem to be much more reliable. And we have independent evidence also that backs up the reliability of these techniques. And what does this 10,000 years change in date mean for the human populations of the time? Well, at the moment, there have been huge debates that have been raging in the paleoanthropological world about what happened when the first modern people entered Europe in terms of Neanderthal populations that were living there. And there are a number of huge questions that, that arise regarding the mechanism of this dispersal and later extinction. Much of this debate hinges upon the amount of time over which populations were contemporary or not. For example, there are huge questions about the amount of interbreeding, if any, that might have taken place when the first moderns reached Europe and found Neanderthals there. Uh, similarly, how much cultural exchange was there between the two? And these have been really strenuously debated for many, many years. Did Neanderthals copy modern humans and did they copy aspects of their technology? Was it the reverse? Did Neanderthals come up with their own version of the Upper Paleolithic Revolution? Did they develop new techniques of making uh, stone artifacts and, and bone tools, which were then copied by incoming modern humans? And as I said, it all comes back to the chronologies. If we have radiocarbon dates such as the one we had from Mesmerskaya, which are 10,000 years younger than we now know that they are, then this changes completely the interpretation of the contemporaneity of these two groups of, of humans.
So when we go back and we, we redate these sites and we find that the dates actually don't stand up to scrutiny, you can imagine that what's called for then is a much wider project in which we date many, many sites once again to find out the real chronology. But I think that rather than seeing a long contemporaneity, the most likely scenario is that there isn't probably a great deal of overlap between the two populations. And for whatever reason, we think that Neanderthal extinction paralleled rather closely the arrival of the first people. That's, that's our hunch looking at it now. But we've got a lot of work still remaining to do and a lot of modeling that needs to take place before we're 100% confident in publishing our, our data yet. But I think that's probably what we'd expect to see. Tom Hyam from the University of Oxford talking about the late Neanderthals in the Caucasus and you can find his work in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist, look back at Naked Archaeology with me, Diana O'Carroll, now to mysteriously extinct horses in Pompeii. In 1987, five equine skeletons were excavated from the famous site, but one was a little unusual. The first set of researchers to analyse the DNA of the misfit determined that its DNA was indeed quite different from that of the other four skeletons, so different that it seemed quite unrelated to surviving modern horses. But Susan Gurney, together with Peter Forster and colleagues, reanalyzed the data and found that, actually, this alien horse was a donkey. So the remains were taken from an excavation in Pompeii from a house which is called the Castiamanti House, which is the house of the chaste lovers, and it's so-called because of the frescoes depicting romantic scenes which were found at the house. And this house was owned by a baker, a wealthy baker, and so it's thought that the stables could have horses and donkeys in them because donkeys and mules were used within bakeries to, to pull the mill. So it would make sense that possibly one of these equid skeletons belonged to a donkey. And so the town of Pompeii is quite important archaeologically because it was covered by ash from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. So by excavating the town, archaeologists are looking at what life was like back then. And it means that in terms of genetics, we can also see what animals, what species of animals were present at that time and how they differ to the species that exist today. Excavation was performed in, initially in 1987, but the DNA analysis of the skeletons, the equid skeletons, didn't take place until uh, 2004. So they uh, extracted DNA from the remains of five skeletons which were found in the stables, and they were wanting to find out how closely related were they to modern horses. And so with one of the remains, it was quite interesting because part of the DNA sequence didn't match any of the DNA sequences that we have for existing modern horses. So the Italian group who did the work concluded that it was possible that this, these horse remains were actually from an extinct horse breed, which we don't see today. And how likely could this have been? I mean, how similar or dissimilar was the DNA from a potential extinct horse? Well, because there was five equids found in the stable, you would assume that the DNA should be quite similar between all five of them. But one of them had a very high number of additional mutations. So it should 
immediately have looked slightly odd that if you're looking at ancient horses, you've got a sample of five from a period of time from AD 79, that they should be fairly similar. But one of them definitely stood out as being different from what they concluded were horses, four horses. And how did this problem land on your doorstep? How did you get involved? Well, I'm doing a, a research project with Dr. Boster, who's also part of Cambridge University, and we're looking at horse profiles. So we're looking at all of the published data on horses, and we've also generated some of our own. So we were actually looking at the ancient DNA sequences which have been published when we came across this very interesting sequence. And it was when we looked at it further that we realised that actually it wasn't an extinct breed as they had been published but was actually a mix of a a donkey sequence and a horse sequence. Oops. (laughs) Okay, um, so how could this have happened? Well, there's three possibilities. It could be a contamination that took place during the excavation, the bones could have been mislabeled. It could have been a contamination that took place in the laboratory when they were actually extracting the DNA and doing the laboratory processes. Or it could have taken place while they were actually writing the paper or during the computer simulation of of the work. So trying to assemble the DNA sequences, they accidentally assembled a donkey to a horse. So there's three possibilities. So how did you actually go about disentangling the problem then? What what kind of methods did you apply to it? Well, we had the initial DNA sequence that the researchers had published. And what we did was we used an alignment program, which basically takes, you choose a reference sequence, which we chose as a horse or a donkey, and then you align the DNA sequence that you have. So it then identifies where the mutations lie. So initially we did it with the horse sequence and found that all the mutations were at the beginning of the the sequence which they'd examined, whereas at the end of the sequence it actually matched a horse quite well. And then we thought, well, it doesn't look like a horse. What are the other possibilities? So we did the change the reference sequence to be a donkey. And we found that the mutations which appeared at the beginning of the sequence actually disappeared because they matched that of a donkey. But then we found that mutations at the end of the sequence appeared because that was, in fact, actually a horse. Okay, so this shows the the kind of problems that can happen with ancient DNA. But are there any interesting things that have turned up about this donkey now that you've, you've got it? Yes, so although it's not an extinct horse, it's still of interest because if we can confirm that the remains are from an ancient donkey, it would actually be some of the the first evidence of the donkey lineage actually being in Italy. There are two donkey lineages, the Somali donkey and the Nubian donkey. And within, across Europe, we see a, a both of these occurring in many of the European countries, but in Italy it's predominantly the Somali donkey lineage, which this is an example of. So it could be actually the the earliest date of a donkey actually being in Pompeii in Italy from this lineage. So the alien horse could actually be one of the first donkeys in Italy. That was Susan Gurney, who works at the Institute of Continuing Education in Cambridge, and you can find her work in the Journal of Cellular Biochemistry. Now for something with a little less biology and more chemistry. Next up is a new development in the field of man-made or naturally occurring material identification. 
An international team have put their heads together to find out what the differences are in the crystal structure of materials such as calcite. Now, calcite can appear naturally in rocks or as part of wall plaster and even ash. So this team have come up with a simple infrared light method that can be done in the field to spot the difference. I spoke to Christine Peduska and Stefano Cotteralo. Well, I've always had an interest in materials and usually spent time trying to understand how to synthesize them to control properties. But what I did for a sabbatical leave was I worked with a group in Israel that was led by Steve Weiner, and they are interested in applying these kinds of material characterization techniques to archaeological materials. And so what brought Stefano and I to this project basically was trying to understand how the crystallinity of a material, basically how well ordered the atomic level structure is in a material, affects how we interpret how that material was used. And there was a very neat example related to calcite. So calcite forms as a rock, but it's also exactly the same chemical composition that you'd find in plaster that you'd use to make a wall or a floor. And so we were basically trying to use material characterization techniques that physicists and engineers might use, both experimentally and theoretically, to apply this to archaeological contexts. Right, so it becomes useful in trying to work out what's man-made and what's not. Exactly. Okay then, so Stefano, how did you go about actually researching this to, to find out what the differences would be? Okay, so what do we use? We use uh, quantum calculations. So we start from uh, quantum mechanics, and through quantum calculations within uh, an approach called uh, density functional theory, we can calculate uh, and predict uh, the effect of disorder in the vibrational spectrum, okay? Because atoms at the nanoscale move, okay? Everything moves depending on, on temperature and light and so on. So when Christine, uh, with uh, her infrared laser, shoots light on these particles, all the atoms start moving uh, following some modes, okay? Like the guitar, right? Everything starts uh, oscillating, okay? The way they oscillate uh, is uh, correlated to the disorder that is left over inside these uh, structures. Since uh, one of my expertise is to calculate vibrations with respect to disorder. Then we, we decided to try it, okay? So we created some uh, artificial disorder. You know, it's, it is a model. So based on the artificial disorder we state, then we calculate how these vibrational modes change. And then we discover that the way they change is some sort of fingerprint of uh, every material. So every material, every crystals, has a set of uh, variation of uh, these vibrations with respect to the characteristic disorders that uh, we can create. Okay? In the case of archaeology, materials that have been made by man or materials that are being made by nature, okay? nature always has infinite time, there's a lot of time nature to to find the proper crystal structure, okay? So all these materials, depending how fast they grow, how long they relax, and how long they stay under high pressure, so they become more or less ordered. And the leftover disorder is responsible of uh, the way this uh, spectra changes with respect to size. So what Christine is measuring, which is the spectrum for different size of particles, because she keeps grinding and then see how the spectra moves, is a fingerprint of each uh, material. And the way they move is, uh, is explained uh, through our model. Okay, and, uh, and Chris, how did you go about actually proving that this, this was working? I mean, Stefano's uh, just mentioned a little bit about you know, creating your own artificial crystals, but could you go into a little bit more depth about, about the tests that you ran? 
Sure. Yeah, just to describe how the experiment works, it's neat because it's very simple. And it's a kind of experiment that people might do in a chemistry lab in a university kind of setting, but it turns out it's very easy to take this out and use this in the field, which is why it's so good for archaeology. So what we do is is take a very small amount of our sample, and small means that if you drew uh, you know, a, a period or something on a piece of paper, the amount of material we use would basically fit in that. So it's a very small amount of material. And we grind that up just by hand with a mortar and pestle, and then we add another bit of material in it to sort of disperse our sample within that. And then what we do is we press that into a small little pellet and shine infrared light through it. And that's the same light that you would be using, for example, in your TV remote uh, to change the channel. And that information we get, basically there's some frequencies that are absorbed, and that tells us about how the molecules in that material are vibrating. And from that, we can use that as a fingerprint to identify what type of material that might be uh, chemically. So we can tell, for example, whether it's calcite or whether it's quartz or some other kind of material like that. And so what we found and what's a little bit different about our work is we were able to use some more specifics about those spectra that we get to differentiate how well ordered at the atomic level the calcite was. And so what this allowed us to do is it turns out that if you make a plaster wall or floor, for example, the atoms aren't very well ordered. And on the other hand, if you have a rock that's been around for a while, it turns out that's very well ordered at the atomic level. And so we were able to use this simple method to help us differentiate whether this was material that had been made by nature or had been made by humans. And have you been able to use this on any archaeological material yet? Yes, and in fact, the group that Stefano and I were both affiliated with, Steve Weiner's group at the Kimmel Center for Archaeological Science at the Weizmann Institute, has been using this technique for a few years now, and they were the first to notice that you could differentiate a little bit about these spectra. Basically, how wide the peaks were gave some information about whether it was plaster or it was rock. And so what Stefano and I did was basically demonstrated that this was indeed related to how well ordered at the atomic level these materials were. So we've been able to take this out on the site so we can take this instrument, which is reasonably portable. Uh, it does require an electric generator to be out there. But then we can run these measurements actually on site and check right away to see what these materials are. And we can look at things other than calcite as well, uh, and that's a little more standard. So, for example, I mentioned differentiating between calcite or quartz or sediments and this sort of thing. So we can also use that as a fingerprint for other different kinds of materials as well. And that's something that Steve's group at the Weizmann Institute does quite well. Right. And, and Stefano, where do you want to take this research next now that you've, you've got this new tool? Well, uh, now we can make uh, fingerprints uh, for a lot of other materials that have uh, been not investigated in the same way. So our method, which uh, so far describes what is known, now becomes predictive because finally we have an explanation. And there is no reason why other systems that grow and are formed in similar way that calcite should not have the same uh, properties. Okay. In the next months and uh, in the next few years, we'll put a lot of effort uh, in determining these shifts and these fingerprints for all these materials that uh, we believe that might be of interest uh, for, to be analyzed on field. 
Christine Paduska from Memorial University in Newfoundland and before her Stefano Cotrallo of Duke University. And they found that infrared light can detect how ordered or disordered the crystal structure of a material is and the more ordered it is, the less likely humans have been tampering with it. You can find their work in the journal Advanced Materials. That's it for the Naked Scientist this week and our roundup of Naked Archaeology. Next week, join us for some astronomy, where Ben Valsler will be taking us to Mars 500. Now, that's the study where they locked a team of volunteers in a hangar in Russia for 500 days to see how they'd cope with the isolation. But that is in only seven days' time. Good night. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com.